Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to gather with you this morning. Uh, Today, we are starting a new series on an important and critical topic for our church. The question that was asked at the beginning of the video, if you didn't hear it, is, are you merciful? And it's not a question that's meant to just be rhetorical. It's not a a question that's meant just to to breeze past and move on. It's a question that we need to think about and really evaluate what the answer is for our own life. Are you merciful? If this is your first time gathering with us as, uh, at this church at Sojourn, we're, we're glad that you're here this morning. We are beginning this new sermon series, and this is a good time for you to be here just to learn and hear about what we are trying to challenge one another to do from God's Word. We're going to spend the next six weeks in this series called Mercy, so that we can try to understand what is mercy, why are we as God's people called to it, and what does it look like, what does it mean for our church family to be merciful. The reason we decided to do this six-week series is because God has convicted me personally and the rest of our staff team that we need to talk about this as a church. That, that as a church, we need to spend time talking about this because we need to grow in this area as a church. And I'm not saying that that's you need to grow and that I don't. This is a sermon series for me as well. As I preach through this series, as, as we preach this sermon, even today, I'm not pre- preaching this from a place of strength in my own life. I'm preaching this from a place of humility because I am aware Thanks to the Holy Spirit that when it comes to showing mercy as God would have me do that, that I do not always do that in the way that's honoring and glorifying to him and and walking in obedience to him. And so the text we're even going to look at today presses on that for me. As I was studying this week, reading this, just like, man, God, I, I need to grow in this area in my own life. And so I hope that as we open up God's word today that it will challenge you in the same way. My hope for this series is very simple, a very simple goal. My hope is, is that as we spend the next six weeks talking about mercy, that it will serve as a catalyst in the life of our church to help Sojourn Church be a community that is a merciful community to our community. I want this to be a catalyst to to kickstart something in your heart, in your life, in your mind that will cause us together as brothers and sisters to be a merciful community to our community. And so as we do every week, as we gather together as a church, we're going to open up God's word, preach from the scriptures to see what God has to say about this. And so this morning, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and there'll be a few folks that'll bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us. Just keep your hand up till they find you. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, please keep that as a gift to you so that you can have it throughout the week. We're going to spend the next six weeks talking about mercy. And today, as we begin, we're going to begin by looking at a story in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 10. Luke's the third uh, book of the Bible in the New Testament, and so you can find that. And we're going to be reading a few verses here, not the whole chapter. So go ahead and find Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 25. I'm just going to read a few verses for us now, but we'll go through this whole story. Luke chapter 10, verse, starting in verse 25. Luke writes this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, talking about Jesus, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that as we open up your word this morning and really over these next six weeks, that you would help us not to just listen to your word preached, that it would just be an intellectual exercise for us. Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would take what you say about us being a merciful people and drive that from our heads to our hearts, and it would be lived out in our lives. Lord, as I said, the goal, my hope for this series, the goal for this series is is for you to spark something within this community, within this church family, that we would be a merciful community to our community. Lord, that's only going to happen by you doing a work in our hearts and in our lives. And so I ask that you would do that today and throughout the rest of this series, and that it would be glorifying and pleasing to you, and it would be for the good of this greater Fairfax area. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, at a high level, when, when we read this, it talks about loving God and loving people, that those are these two commands that this lawyer uh, gives back to Jesus. And, and I think at a high level for most of us, we kind of say, well, yeah, I get that. I get that I'm supposed to love God and love people. And if you call yourself a follower of Christ, then you may even say, well, I, I get it, and I, I feel like I'm doing an okay job with that. I understand that I'm supposed to, my whole life is supposed to be about loving God. My whole life is supposed to be about loving people. But do we really get it? Do we really understand what it means to love God? Do we really understand what, it's, what God's calling us to when he says to love our neighbors as ourselves? Well, this story in Luke chapter 10 presses on that reality, and it presses at the level of our heart. And in the practical parts of our lives, do we really love God with everything we have? Do we really love our neighbor in the way that he calls us to? Jesus is gathered with a group of people, and it includes some of the religious leaders of the day. And in this particular instance, a lawyer stands up to ask Jesus a question. And you notice in verse 25, it says that he, he stands up to test Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus and show that he's maybe smarter than Jesus when it comes to his relationship with the Lord. Now, a lawyer in Jesus' day is not like a lawyer in our day. This is not someone who is uh, defending a client or prosecuting a criminal. A lawyer in Jesus' day is a religious expert. He's an expert in the law of God. We just spent a long time over the last year looking at the Torah, at God's law. And so this lawyer would be an expert in the Torah. He would know it. He would have memorized it and studied it and know the intricacies, the ins and out of it. And so here's the question that he asks to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to gain eternal life from God? Now, at face value, that's a good question to ask. That's a good question for you to ask. It's a good question for me to ask, and it's a good thing to have an answer to. What must I do to have eternal life with holy God? But you notice Jesus doesn't give him an answer straight up. Just, he doesn't just answer his question and move on. He does what he often does and asks a question in return. And I think the reason Jesus is asking a question in return is because Jesus knows that this question isn't an innocent question. He, he, this man is not looking just at a, at, a, at a surface level to know what it means to gain eternal life. There's something more going on at, in his heart, and so Jesus wants to draw out the deeper issue and address that issue within this man's heart. And so Jesus asks two questions. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Look, you're, a, you're an expert in the law of Moses. What does it say? So the lawyer answers. He responds with 
what we call the two greatest commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now these two commandments are called the greatest commandments because in these two commandments, all of the law of God is summarized. All the law of God is summarized in these two things. We're to love God with everything and we're to love others as we would love ourselves. Love God, love people. But we're to do it completely and fully and faithfully and perfectly. So that the lawyer gives this answer and Jesus in a matter of fact way just says, correct. That's what the law says. So if you do this, you will live. That's interesting because the lawyer has essentially been forced to answer his own question. In front of this group of people, he's asked this question to Jesus to try and test Jesus, but Jesus makes the man answer the question himself. And so maybe he's embarrassed, I don't know, but he presses a bit further. And this is getting to the heart issue of what this man is dealing with. See, he thinks he has the love of God part down. He knows the law. He, he understands what it means to have a relationship with the Lord. He follows all the things that God says to as it relates to worshiping him, he thinks. And so he wants to press it a little bit further on the other end. Well, if we're supposed to love other people as we love ourselves, then I need to know who are those people that I need to love. Who is my neighbor really? Jesus, give me some specifics as to what counts for checking off that box of loving others. If if obeying the law is just about checking off boxes, and maybe this is what this man thinks, then tell me how I can do that. And notice what it says in the verse there. uh, In verse 29, it says, But he desiring to justify himself. He, He wants to be able to control his ability to gain life from God. Tell me what I need to do to get what I want. Tell me what I do to need to check these boxes off. And Jesus has him right where he wants him to address the reality of this man's heart. See, at the end of the day, this lawyer is not interested in truly loving God with everything that he has and loving others as an overflow of that. He's interested in bare minimums. Tell me what I need to do to get by. And so Jesus does what he often does as we read throughout the Gospels through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as he tells a story. He gives an illustration, what we call parables, to answer his question and address his heart. So let's look at what Jesus says. Starting in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is known as the Jericho Road, and it drops in elevation some 3,000 feet over 18 miles. So, so it's, a, it's a rough terrain. It's rocky and it's difficult. And it's surrounded by caves, which makes it a perfect place for people that want to take advantage of other people, that want to rob other people to hide in and hide out and accost people as they're making their way down this road. And we see that happens to this man. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Jesus, in telling this story, says this man who's who's dying on the side of the road, who's been robbed, has two religious leaders that come by and see him in his, this, this place of distress in his life. And they see him, they notice him, yet they pass by him. Now, Jesus doesn't give any commentary on why they do that. But for whatever reason, in the midst of this story, something was more important to them in that moment than stopping and helping this man. 
checking on his well-being. But then we get to verse 33, and Jesus drops a bombshell in the crowd that's listening to him. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, a Samaritan enters the scene in Jesus' story, and Jesus' audience would have been taken aback by that because they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were essentially a group of people that had intermarried with other people when, uh, when Israel was in captivity. And so the, the re- religious leaders of the day saw them as being, uh, being second-class citizens in God's kingdom. They didn't like them. So much so that if they were traveling and the shortest distance for them to get back home would have been to travel through Samaria, they would go around it because they didn't want to be anywhere near these people. They didn't like them. They were their enemies. There were other rules and and laws and regulations they made up to to make sure that you stayed away from what they considered unclean people, the Samaritans. So when Jesus introduces the Samaritan in the story, that would have gotten their attention really fast. But notice what happens in verse 34. He has compassion on him, verse 34, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan has compassion, but he doesn't just feel for him. He doesn't just have sympathy and empathy for him. He doesn't just stop and say, I should pray for this man. No, it leads him to action in this person's life. He seeks to relieve the situation of his need, and he does so in a radical way. He uses his time. He's on a journey. He's traveling on the same road. He's going somewhere, but he stops. But he doesn't just stop. He takes time to put the man on his animal to take him to an inn. He uses his time. He uses his resources. He uses the oil and wine that he has. He makes bandages to care for this man. And then we see that he uses some of his own money to pay for this man to be cared for. Now, it says that he spends two denarii, which is about two days' wages. Now, we can read that and make, okay, that, that's, that's great and all. But just by way of example, to help us to quantify that a bit, if someone today made $100,000 a year, that means that, that this man was spending about $770 on a total stranger on someone who he knows, if this man was maybe cognizant and and more aware, would consider him an enemy, would hate him, would consider him unclean, yet he shells out $770, two days' wages, but it doesn't stop there. He tells the innkeeper as he drops this man off at the inn, he says, look, I want you to take care of him. I have to continue on my journey. Take care of him. Here's some money. But listen, I know you're probably going to incur more costs because it's going to take a while for this man to recover. So I'm going to leave my tab open. You just let me know. You let me know what other costs there might be that, that this man incurs as he recovers. And I'll come back through and I'll pay for them. The Samaritan man shows exceeding love, care, and concern for a man he does not know, a man who otherwise would consider him an unclean enemy. He has genuine compassion for him that leads to action. So Jesus has this crowd around him listening to him, and then he asks the heart question, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You see what Jesus does there? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? 
tell me the specifics of who I need to be to, to, to do this to, who's considered my neighbor, that I need to show love to them. But Jesus flips the question on him. The question isn't who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? Whose neighbor am I? This isn't about being reactive, it's about being proactive to look out and see who am I to be a neighbor to? Who, who's, who am I a neighbor to? The man is forced to answer the question now. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He simply says the one who showed mercy. And Jesus just lets it hang there and simply states, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. This is what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. In avoiding to say the Samaritan, the lawyer nails it on the head. It's about showing mercy Loving your neighbor as yourself, loving people is about showing radical mercy, even to someone who might hate you. Now, if we're familiar with the Bible, and I know some of us in this room may not be familiar with the Bible, may not be familiar with this story, but if we're familiar with this story, we may know the particulars of this story. But Sojourn, listen, I don't want any familiarity with this text or any familiarity with the story to cause us to miss what Jesus is communicating to us here. Jesus is defining what it means to love your neighbor. Jesus is defining mercy for us. And he links those two things together. We can't let that be lost on us. Loving our neighbor means that we are merciful. Those two things go together. And what we see in this is that mercy is not tied up with a nice, neat bow. It's not a once in a while weekend activity. It's not sentimental. It's born out of a genuine care and compassion for those who are in need. Mercy is loving people by tangibly meeting their needs. By tangibly meeting their needs, whatever those happen to be. Loving your neighbor makes no distinction in offering care. Because the issue isn't for us to define who the neighbor is or to seek to do the minimum we can do. This is just a call for God's people to be a neighbor. Loving your neighbor by showing and giving mercy is radical in nature. Do you see that it's it's indiscriminate when it comes to what we should be giving to others? That's what Jesus is trying to illustrate here with this parable. As he's telling this to the people that are listening to him, this would be scandalous for them to hear. That a Samaritan, someone they hate, would care for them that much. And his call is clear. You go and do likewise. Go show radical mercy mercy. Sojourn, as a church, I want us to heed Jesus' words. I want us together and as individuals in community to be marked by and show radical mercy to our community. Again, that's the goal of this series, that God would use this time over these next few weeks to be a catalyst in our lives so that we would become a merciful community to our community. But I think at face value, most of us probably are sitting here saying, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I read this story, and of course I agree with Jesus that this man is showing mercy, and that's a good thing that we should show mercy to. But the problem for most of us, I think, myself included, is that what we want to do is what the lawyer did. Jesus, give me the specifics. I I get that I should show mercy to people, but I mean, you you got to give me some parameters here. Give me some definition. What counts for showing mercy to people? What do you consider to be merciful? Because I want to follow you, Jesus, but I I need to know the boundaries. I need to know the definition and the box that I can check. 
Because once I show mercy, I'm ready to move on. But when we do that, we've missed Jesus' point completely. Mercy is not a box to be checked. Mercy is not a box to be checked in our lives. It's a way of life that flows out of our hearts. And it's seeing others in need and like the Samaritan, having compassion for them that leads to action. Compassion that leads to action. Compassion that doesn't lead to action probably isn't really compassion. It's not just a feeling. It's not just sympathizing. It's not just empathizing with someone, but taking the steps to move forward, to relieve their distress, whatever that might be, whether physical or spiritual in nature. Now, some of you may be already thinking, okay, okay, hold up, wait a minute. There's got to be limits, though. I mean, you're talking crazy here, radical mercy, but there's got to be limits. I mean, we can't give everything to everyone. There's got to be limits in what we do to meet other people's needs. And perhaps there are limits. Maybe there are limits to what it looks like for us to give mercy to other people around us. But I don't think that's our problem. I don't think any of us have a problem limiting mercy. I think our problem is being generous and lavishing mercy on other people. That people would look at us and think us foolish for how merciful we are to those around us in need. I know that's the case for me. And if I think about my own life, I get and I understand the importance of being compassionate and kind and caring and loving towards other people. But I can quickly justify why the limit that I've placed on that is sufficient so that I can move on. What we need to realize is that our lack of love or our love, our mercy or lack of mercy at the end of the day is rooted in our hearts. See, when Jesus says to the lawyer to love God and love others fully, completely, and perfectly, he is telling us to do something that we cannot do by our own willpower. Something we cannot do by our own resolve. To say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love God completely, and by loving God completely, I'm going to love other people completely. We cannot do that on our own. And that's what the lawyer gets wrong. He hears Jesus say this, but he, he misses it. The lawyer could have said, okay, yes, you're, you're correct. You quoted the law back to me. Go and do that and you will live. And the lawyer should have heard that and recognized that I can't do this. I can't do this completely. But instead, he seeks to justify himself. And tell me what boxes I need to check. I, I want to check things off. I want to be on the up and up with God. And so show me what I need to do. I want to do it, bare minimum, so I can move on with my life. He wanted to earn eternal life. Instead of seeing that it's when he receives the gift of eternal life from God by his grace that that's what allows him to do this in the first place. Sojourn, we have to understand that the only way that you and I can show radical mercy is when we understand that we need to experience radical mercy first. And if you are in Christ this morning, if you have a relationship with God through Christ, then you already have. Listen to God's word to you this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." If you know Christ, Paul's saying this is who you used to be. If you don't yet know Christ, this is the reality of your life right now. But then Paul goes on to say, but God, but God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, he writes there to Titus something very similar. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. If you know Christ, this is who you used to be. If you don't yet know Christ, this is the reality of your life right now. But then Paul goes on to say, But, but, When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we checked boxes off, not because we did all these things the right way, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Children, what we have to understand is that the love and mercy we have received in and through Christ informs the love and mercy we are to give to others. It must. The love and mercy that we receive through Christ must inform the love and mercy we show to others. And this is where it presses on us. This is where it presses on us because we want those nice, neat borders and definitions to the extent of what is required of us in regard to the mercy we're to give. We don't disagree that we should give mercy. We just think, well, can you just give me a little bit better picture of what I have to do? And so we say things and think things like, well, I want to show mercy to the deserving poor, but not the undeserving poor. I want to show mercy to the deserving poor, maybe someone who's in a situation that's out of their control. They got laid off from their job. They're in a dire situation. There's been some sin uh, that's happened against them that's caused them to be in the situation that they're in. So they're the deserving poor. But I'm not interested in giving mercy to the undeserving poor because they brought that on themselves. They got themselves in that situation. Maybe because they're lazy. Because they didn't work hard enough. All they do is take advantage of the system. And so I, I don't want to give mercy to them. They don't deserve it. They're the undeserving poor. We can say and think things like, I want to show mercy, but I want to show it in a way that will guard against someone exploiting my mercy. And so we look at someone and say, well, I want to help you, but I'm only willing to help you if I can guarantee that you're not going to go spend this money frivolously. You're not going to take advantage of my mercy. You're not going to squander the mercy that I give to you. And so we want to guard against that. But... When you and I do that, we have forgotten the kind and quantity of the mercy we have received in and through Jesus. Listen, if you know Christ, you and I are all the undeserving poor. We were rebels, all of us, worshiping anything and everything except God. We didn't fix ourselves up. We didn't figure it out. We didn't show God that we were going to do a good job if he would just show us mercy. We didn't bring anything to God that he would save us. We didn't take a step towards him first. We were running away from him. We can't do anything good to earn God's favor. And listen, if God then only showed mercy to the deserving poor, we would all be dead in our sin and eternally separated from God. We are all undeserving because we are the ones that got ourselves into this mess in the first place. But God, being rich in mercy, gets us out. We were dead and Jesus made us alive. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. All people in all time are the undeserving poor. But through Christ, he has made us all objects of radical mercy and grace at great personal cost. 
Jesus didn't limit his mercy for us. He left the tab open. We're all the undeserving poor. And we all also squander the mercy that we've received. We've taken God's mercy and continued to run away from him and run to other lesser gods and idols. As we talked about a few weeks ago, anything or anyone that we look to to give us something that only God can give us. Anything that deflects our devotion to Jesus. None of us can consistently, none of us do consistently or 100% of the time receive the mercy God gives to us and steward it well. We often take it for granted. Other times we just flat out presume on it. Listen, if God only gave mercy to those he knew would never squander that mercy, he would never give mercy to anyone. This is where 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 should hit us in the heart. Paul writes, Therefore you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though the, that, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He gives mercy to us freely, lavishly, and he does it without any conditions. Without any conditions for us to meet. Sojourn, when we understand this, when we understand that we're all the undeserving poor, when we understand that we squander the mercy God's given to us, then we can never look at anyone again and withhold mercy because they don't deserve it. Because the reality is you didn't deserve it, neither did I. Our mercy towards other people should be indiscriminate and generous, not because it's cool, not because it's relevant to do that, but because our Lord did this and he lavished it on us. And God's word calls us to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 say, say this, By this we may know that we are in him. If we really want to know we have a relationship with God through Christ, this is what John writes, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's important for us as a church and as individuals to take Jesus' call seriously to love others, to show mercy to others because it's rooted in our relationship with God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you really think about that at face value, it may sound a little scandalous to us. It sounds like we have to show mercy in order to receive mercy from God. Is that what's going on here? But this isn't about earning mercy. We don't give mercy to gain mercy from God. We can't. It's saying, as we heard in the video, that the evidence of God's mercy in your life is determined by the mercy you give to others. We can strive to be radically merciful because we have received radical mercy. What this means is that giving mercy to others is not motivated then by guilt. It's motivated by grace. It's motivated by the mercy that we've received from God already and the effect it's having in our life. So now, because we've received mercy, we show mercy. And as we show mercy, we know then that we will receive mercy from God in the end. We could say that this is the ethic of the kingdom of God. We think about the kingdom of God. God has ordained and and said that through Christ that he is bringing his kingdom to fruition. We pray that kingdom come, thy will be done. But we're in this period of time where God's kingdom has been started, inaugurated, but it's not fully here yet. That will come when Jesus returns. 
But the ethic of the kingdom of God is that this is how we should live. We should seek to love others and show mercy to others as we've received. And if you are in Christ, if you've been united with Christ by faith, believing that Jesus did what he said he came to do to die on the cross for your sin, what that means for you now, what it means for me now is that we are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. But we live in a jacked up world where sin has jacked up everything, both on a personal and systemic level. And the social problems we see all around us, the social problems in our community and in our country are a result of a broken relationship with our creator. What this means then is that fixing those things is not a political issue, it's a gospel issue. Because it resides at the core of a person in their heart. But when you and I show and give mercy, we display a sign of the coming kingdom. Because one day Christ will return to rule and reign forever. He will wipe away every tear. He will crush every disease. He will destroy all injustice. He will annihilate every sin and addiction in somebody's life. He will eliminate all brokenness. But until that day, we as God's people are called to go into the world as agents of his kingdom. As one pastor says, as agents of the kingdom, we should seek to bring God's kingly rule and kingly blessing to all people as far as the curse is found. As we await the return of the king who will come and reconcile all things to himself. Now you may be sitting there saying, okay, well this is great, we should show mercy to people, we should show radical mercy to people, but what about evangelism? I mean, if we get too wild and crazy on this and go out just showing mercy to people, we're going to forget the mission of God. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to spread the gospel, the good news. And if we, if, we, if we just show mercy, we'll be preaching and living a social gospel instead of the true gospel. But that thought right there, and I've had that thought too, betrays something about what we really think the work of Christ, the extent of the work of Christ really is. Luke chapter 24, verse 19, says something about Jesus that we see throughout all four Gospels, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's this, that Jesus was mighty in word and in deed. He was mighty in word and in deed. He proclaimed the Gospel of the Kingdom of God and he did the works of the Kingdom of God. And so we as his people are now called to be on both mission and to show mercy. We need to see those as two wings to the same plane. Oftentimes when we give mercy to other people, when we show mercy to other people, it gives us an opportunity to be on mission with them, to share Christ with them. But listen, we can never make mercy just a means to an end. We, we don't just make mercy a means to an end. I'm just going to do this just so I can get here. No, we show mercy. We share the gospel because of love. That's our motivation that we're willing to love people and lavishly and radically show mercy to them just because we care for them. I I want my kids to know Christ. I have two boys right now. I want my kids to know Christ. That's of primary importance to me. I pray for it every single day. But I don't see caring for their physical needs as merely an end, a means to an end. The motivation for me to share the message of grace to them and to show them mercy by caring for them is always love. If my son is hungry, I give him food because I love him. If my son is sick, I give him medicine and comfort him because I love him. My son is a sinner, so I tell him the gospel because I love him. It's all rooted in love. The end goal 
is the spread of the kingdom of God and both mercy and mission are both the means to that end. They're interdependent things that God has called us to. Jesus' ministry was one of word and deed and he did that because of his love for the world. And so we, as God's people, should seek to do the same thing. To love all people, regardless of who they are, regardless of why they're in the circumstances that they find themselves in, we should love them with mercy and grace, word and deed. Because when you and I understand who we were, when you and I understand what we've received, then we cannot help but have compassion on those in need, just like Jesus had for you. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says this, when a Christian sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, the refugees, he knows he is looking in a mirror. Because we were unsavable, but God saved us. We were unlovable, but God loved us. We were dirty, but God cleansed us. We were dead, but God made us alive. And we absolutely did not deserve it. That is amazing and radical mercy. God's mercy is outrageous, so ours should be too. God's mercy knows no bounds, and neither should ours. And when someone asks you in the midst of showing them mercy, why are you doing this? We can say with all honesty, because my God did that for me. Do you know him? Do you know him? Sojourn, Jesus says to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. That should mean so much more to us. That should mean so much more to us. It's not just a call to show radical mercy like the Samaritan. It's a call to show radical mercy like we have received. You go and do likewise. A merciful God has set his people apart for mercy in a broken world. Go and do likewise. Listen, the stark reality that we need to understand is that when we withhold mercy, the implication from Matthew 5, 7, from James chapter 2, and even from Luke 10, is that when we withhold mercy, is that we do not receive mercy, but judgment. Because as we heard earlier, if we do not display mercy, it might be because we have not truly experienced mercy. So let me pause and just ask you this question today. Have you truly experienced the mercy of God? We heard from Titus 3 and Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our sin, unwilling and unable to do anything to change our situation on our own. What we all deserve is righteous judgment from God for our rebellion, for our sin, for turning away from God. But what God gives to us is grace. What God gives to us is radical mercy. And it all comes through Christ. Do you believe that you are a rebel against God? That you've sinned against God by worshiping anything and everything except God? Do, do you believe that there's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself and what you truly deserve is righteous judgment for your sin? Then truly trust in Christ today. Believe today that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and that in so doing, he lavished mercy on you. He lavished grace on you so that instead of judgment from God, you be called a child of God, brought into his family. Ephesians 2 goes on to say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith. 
through believing that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin that we deserved. Believing that Jesus is our only hope and it's a gift from God, so take that gift if you've never taken it before. And then recognize that when you've truly experienced the mercy and grace of God, that God has given you new life, that he's made you a new creation, that by being his new creation, he's given you good works to do. We can't do the good works God has prepared before prepared beforehand for us to do until we've received and experienced that mercy. And when we have, when we've experienced the love and mercy of God that comes in and through Jesus, our hearts are changed so that we can know God, so that we can love God. And as we know and love God, it's then that we're able to love people as God calls us to. Sojourn, let's not strive to do things that foster our love for God, but then go about our day denying love for people. Those two things do not go together. They cannot go together. We love God by loving people. Now, as I said earlier, I'm not preaching this from a place of strength but weakness in my own life. I, I'm preaching this sermon today to myself. And my hope is, is that we preach through this series, that even as I preach sermons that come out of my mouth, that God would change my heart. And I hope that he'll do the same in your heart as well. I don't want us to think that suffering and need is only present in the inner city. We say, okay, let's get, on, let's get in our car, let's drive down 66, let's go into D.C. Certainly there's suffering and need there. But listen, there's suffering and need and hardship that surrounds us even here in the suburbs, here in Fairfax. My family lives in the city of Fairfax right off of Main Street. And there's a path that goes by our house. And it's not infrequent that homeless people walk down that path right next to my house. I can look out my dining room window and see a homeless person walking by. It's not uncommon, it's not infrequent for you to drive down Main Street on your way to gather with the church on Sunday morning and see someone who's homeless walking down the street. Man, if it doesn't break your heart on a day like today, that there's people living in your neighborhood that have nowhere to go, no heat or source of heat for them to be warmed by, and that when you lie in your bed at night, if it doesn't bother you, if it doesn't move you to have compassion for them, Man, would you look in your heart? Do you understand the mercy you've received from God? Last year, there were a count of 1,225 homeless men, women, and children in our county. We live in a big county. That may not seem like a big number, but that means there's 1,200 people that have nowhere to live, no place to lay their head. And there's brokenness all around us. On that same path by my house, a friend of mine recently says that he, what he, he, what he thought he saw a, a drug deal going down on that same path, right outside my house. But listen, I don't want to run away from that. I want us as a church to, to speak into that, not with laws and legislation, but with grace and mercy and love for our community. There is brokenness all around us. There's poverty here in this area in Fairfax. There's a jail in the middle of our city that on any given day has 1,300 people in it. There's human trafficking going on right here. There are people from all over the world who literally have nothing but have come here trying to make it so they can care for their families. There are kids in foster care here. There are nursing homes and shut-ins and widows here. And maybe it's even closer to home for you. There's a single mom on your street that's having a hard time right now. 
There's someone that lives in your neighborhood right down the road who just had a baby that just needs someone to bring a meal to them. Maybe there's a man on your street who hurt himself at work and can't work, can't mow his grass. There's things like that all around us that we can seek to show radical mercy to. All those situations, all those people, we are their neighbors. We're their neighbors. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk through what it looks like for us to heed Jesus' call to show mercy to those in need in our community, to our neighbors. That's what we're going to spend the rest of this time talking about. But today I want to leave you with two things. I want to ask you to do two things, two interrelated things. I want to ask you to pray. I want you to pray for our church, that you would commit over these next few weeks just to pray that God would do a work in this community that would compel us to see that we can't ignore Jesus' call to go and do likewise. But as you're praying for your church, I want you to pray for yourself too. That you would pray, that you would ask God to reveal these things to you, to examine your own heart, to confess and repent where you have not shown mercy, where you've withheld mercy from people, where you've made different excuses and limits that you've placed on that. Instead of asking God what he would have you do, just confess that and repent before the Lord. Ask him to help you. Ask him to help you have compassion for the people around you who are in need. And the second interrelated thing is I want to ask you just to be attentive to the Spirit. Be attentive to the Spirit in the midst of this. Don't just allow this to be a mental exercise for you. But you just pray and and ask God to help you listen to what God would have have to say to you. What he might stir up in your heart. The Holy Spirit is speaking something directly to you right now, telling you that he wants you, you to do something. Be attentive to the Spirit and heed what he's calling you to do. So let me leave you with this last thought. When we show and give mercy to people around us, we do that in the name of Christ and for the fame of Christ. We don't do it to make a name for this church. We don't do it to make a name for ourselves. But even as Christ people, as agents of mercy and ambassadors of grace, let me ask you this question. Would anyone in Fairfax care if this church no longer existed? Would they give a rip if If tomorrow we shut the doors, we shut everything down, and this church is no longer here, would anybody care? My hope is is that God will stir our hearts. My hope is that God will raise up men and women who are sitting here today that are part of this church, will raise you up to be leaders in this area in our church. My hope is that God will help us together to walk in obedience to what God has called us to do, to be a merciful community to our community. As we come forward this morning to take communion, my hope is this meal will remind us that we all are the undeserving poor. That we have no righteousness of our own, but that God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. His body was given for us. His blood was shed for us. That we might be forgiven our sin. That we might be adopted into God's family and be with him forever and ever. This meal is a family meal, and it reminds us that none of us paid to be able to eat it. None of us did anything to deserve it. So we can come forward freely because of the mercy we've received. But let me just ask those of you that don't yet know Christ not to come forward to take this meal, because in order for this to be something that's purposeful in your life, to encourage you is the reality for this, what this meal symbolizes to be true for you, that you've actually experienced the mercy of God. 
And so if you don't yet know Christ, we just want to ask you to sit in your seat today. Just pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask God to save you today. Trust in the grace and mercy that comes in and through Jesus. That's why we're here. And if you have questions about what it means to know and follow Christ, then please come talk to me or any of our other leaders. We'd love to talk with you about that. We'd love to pray with you and help you understand what it means to be able to receive that gift of grace and mercy. Those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And just listen to the words of what Jesus has done for you today. We have two stations up here that you can come to. We'll also have two communion stations in the back. So if you're kind of in the back half, you can head that way. If you're in the front half, you can come forward. But as you eat and drink this morning, be reminded, be refreshed that God through Christ at great personal cost was merciful to you. Now go and do likewise. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Father, we, we should be blown away by the mercy you've shown us. That all of us are the undeserving poor. That all of us squander your mercy. There's nothing we did to earn that. There's nothing that we did that we have in our life that we can offer you to, to get that from you. That we are running away from you. Yet God, through Christ you sent your son and through Christ you, you saved us, you reconciled us, you poured out your rich mercy on us that we would be called your sons and daughters. I pray that that reality would just compel us to see that we now are called to be merciful as our Father is merciful. So Lord, as we look around our communities, we look around this city, I pray that you would help us to see the needs around us, to lift our eyes, to lift our gaze off of ourselves onto those around us, and that we, by your grace, by your mercy, by the power of your spirit, would be radically merciful, that we'd have genuine compassion and love for others. Lord, would you do that work in us? Transform this church, God, I pray, to be a merciful community that shows mercy to our community. God, we thank you for Christ who's made this possible. We pray that you do that work in us for your glory and for the good of our church and the good of our city. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.